Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Who, <clears throat> therefore, he is also able, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who have come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we have these verses in Scripture because they emphasize for us that our salvation is not something that is the result of our own efforts, our own work. We do not keep ourselves saved. You keep us saved by your grace. And that as we go through numerous passages in Scripture emphasizing that the eternal security that we have, we realize it is not based on how we feel. It is not based on anything in our experience. It is based on your promise, and we trust in your promise because every now and then people do go through times when they question their salvation, question if this is all right, question... Uh, whether or not they're, they've done something that's too great for your grace. And what we learn from Scripture is your grace is sufficient. It is greater than all of our sin. It, over, it provided a perfect solution for us, and we are kept by your power because you alone are able to save us and able to keep us. And that one of the greatest signs of our salvation is the fact that at that instant that we trust in Christ for our sa- as our Savior, we are sealed. One of many things that you do for us at that instant, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the mark of the fact that we are now bought with a price, we are owned by you, and... Uh, As a result, we are eternally secure as your possession. So, Father, we rejoice at that. And today, as we study this important teaching of Scripture, we pray that it would uh, really encourage us and impact us as we think about the fact that we have an eternal salvation guaranteed by the presence of God the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, today we're talking about eternal security, especially as it is revealed to us in the doctrine or the teaching of Scripture that we are sealed by God the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 4.30, which is the passage that we've been looking at for the last two Sundays, is one of about four key passages uh, related to this doctrine. But it's important for us to understand the components of this sentence and as well as putting it all together. As we've seen in the last two weeks, the command is not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So as we look at this and have looked at this over the last two weeks, we've broken it down into these four uh, phrases. Four phrases or clauses in this, in this verse. The first clause is, and do not grieve. And we looked at that two weeks ago, and that that is primarily a figure of speech. It is not talking about uh, a literal emotion in God. It is a figure of speech used to express the seriousness and the significance when we violate the righteousness of God in living our Christian life. We do not lose our salvation, but we do have, it does have an impact on our day-to-day joy of our salvation, and it does impact 
uh, our ongoing fellowship. And that's why we have promises like 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin or admit to God our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not just the sins that we remembered. Some people say, oh, I just can't remember all the sins I've committed. Well, I'm not going to comment on all of that. We all know that uh, that probably means it's been a while. You haven't kept short accounts if you can't remember all the sins, but some people can't even remember one. But that usually indicates a level of of uh, self-absorption or a level of uh, selfishness or arrogance, which we all have all the time. So that's that's always a given, it seems. So we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which means to violate the standards of God that are set forth in this chapter as we have studied the standards for the, the life in Christ, the life of the new man. And we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And last time I talked about uh, that phrase, that this emphasizes the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And this morning we're going to look at by whom you were sealed, and then the last phrase for the day of redemption. So last time we looked at this, this, uh, we reviewed this uh, from two weeks ago. This verb is a verb for... Uh, sorrow, for sadness, for grief, for emotional distress. It's a word that is used of our Lord Jesus Christ's mental uh, attitude, his his uh, emotions that he was going through uh, the night before he went to the cross. Now, so that tells us, number one, it's not sinful to grieve or to be sorrowful or to be sad. What's sinful is doing something wrong with that, letting that be a trigger for sinful activity. And so what did our Lord do when he faced sadness and sorrow and grief? He took it to the Lord in prayer. He prayed to the Father. And that it was his focus. And that is a pattern, a pattern for us. But we saw that this is a figure of speech based on passages in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 55, 8, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are our ways His ways. He says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is not a man. He does not uh, behave, think, or emote as humans do. He is our creator. He is totally different. Uh, of a, uh, he is totally different in a way that we cannot imagine. He's the infinite personal creator God. We are a finite representative of God because we're created in his image and likeness, but that does not mean that God in turn is in our image. That is the failure of modern man. They've created God in their own image. So as such is God, the fact that God is infinite, He is beyond our finite ability to comprehend because we are creaturely. We have limited conceptions and we think only in terms usually of our own frame of reference and our own experience. We can know true things about God. We can know the things and understand the things that God has revealed to us about Him, but we cannot never understand Him and never will understand Him exhaustively. We do not become omniscient when we have our resurrection body. We will still have finite knowledge as a creature. So to get us, help us to understand him, scripture uses a number of analogies and uh, and idioms. We looked at idioms last time that these are common expressions which are not to be understood literally. And our language is filled with these. Uh, we use them every day in every way. I gave many examples last week. But these idioms have a set meaning. Whenever somebody says uh, something using an idiom, uh, like telling uh, telling someone to go jump in the lake, we know that they do not mean for somebody to literally jump in a physical body of water. Uh, we're just telling them off in some way that they are out of touch with reality. So every every idiom has a set meaning. It's just not based on the literal uh, uh, connotation of the words. Now, two two words come to play here, two figures of speech, 
anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms. The difference between them is the center syllable. Morph and anthropomorphisms refer to the form of something. So we have um, anthropomorphisms refer to the physical form of a human being as applied to God. He does not actually possess ears or hands or an arm, but those figures of speech are used in order to teach us something about God. They refer to aspects of God's nature that he does not physically possess because God is a spirit. So he does not actually possess arm, eyes, nose, ear, but uh, he those are used because that's a frame of reference for us so that we can understand his plans, policies, purposes, and attributes. Uh, we have anthropopathisms in the Scripture. A path from the word for passion, uh, that refers to emotion. And so there are e- human emotions which God does not actually possess, which are used of God in order to give us that, that point of reference so that we can understand things about God's plans, policies, and purposes. And so we have this, these statements in Scripture, like Isaiah 63.10, talking about the episode at Meribah, which we studied two weeks ago, that when Israel, when the nation is, was in the wilderness and they rebelled against God, it grieved His Holy Spirit. And these Old Testament examples of God being grieved relate to that, that event and their uh, their disobedience to God and their rebelliousness. Ezekiel uh, 6, 9, talk, uh, God says, because I was uh, crushed by their adulterous heart. But God, we don't, we don't crush God. He doesn't have that emotional change takes place in him uh, because he is, he's always known in his omniscience about every failure we will ever have, so he is not constantly being affected by these acts of disobedience. Uh, Psalm 78.40 refers to that same Meribah incident. We grieved him in the desert. So our conclusion was that grieving God or the Holy Spirit describes uh, with human references to grief and sadness, disappointment and sorrow, the impact on, on God's Righteousness that we have violated his righteousness. And so therefore there is an impact in terms of our relationship with him and because we have acted contrary to God's character. Then last time we talked about the personality of the Holy Spirit. And as I pointed out, this is not something that we really struggle with as uh, evangelical Christians, but this is the assault from the, from the left, from the Unitarians, from the liberals. And so they, uh, they emphasize that there is no personhood to the Holy Spirit. This is just a force of God, just a way of talking about that. But the scriptures, as I pointed out last week, going through numerous examples, attribute, uh, characteristics of personhood to God the Holy Spirit. He has knowledge. He has will or volition. He guides us. He leads us. He directs us. He is performing miracles. Uh, He intercedes for us. Further, the Holy Spirit can be lied to, can be blasphemed, and can be resisted. Now, what that tells us is he's a person. So we can have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit just as we do with God the Father and with God the Son. So now we come to the last part of this verse. Uh, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So what does that mean? What is this describing? And this is a very significant uh, doctrine that we have in the in the uh, scriptures. So, what does the Bible teach about being sealed by the Spirit? Well, we'll put up a diagram familiar to everyone that when we talk about our relationship with God, we talk about it in terms of two different dimensions. One is the eternal dimension that has to do with our legal position in Christ, 
who we are in Christ. This never changes. The instant that we trust Christ as Savior, we are identified with Christ's death on the cross. Romans 6, 3 through 6. We're identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And this is uh, called spirit baptism. God the Holy Spirit is used by the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection the same way that John the Baptist was using water to identify those who had repented in response to his message, uh, had repented and were turning toward the, uh, are preparing for the arrival of the kingdom uh, of God. So you have this identification now that was not in the Old Testament at all, that does not occur until the day of Pentecost and beginning with the church and is the unique and distinctive sign of the church age believer. And in Romans 6, 3 through 6, we find out that this is really the foundation for us to understand our new spiritual life. Because now that we are in this new position, we have a new identity. We're in Christ. That's the new man that this uh, chapter in Ephesians chapter 4 is talking about. But another thing that happens instantly and simultaneously with the baptism by the Holy Spirit is that we are indwelt by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16 and 6, 13 tell us that we are, ba- we are indwelt by the, by the Holy Spirit. He it takes up residence inside of each and every believer. And this is non-reversible. We can't lose the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. And another term that is used that is a synonym for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the concept of being anointed by the Holy Spirit. Those are talking about uh, the same the same thing. So we are indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit, and as part of His uh, permanent indwelling of us, we are permanently sealed because it is the Holy Spirit's indwelling itself that is the sealing by the Holy Spirit. We are sealed with the Spirit. The Spirit is the sealing that identifies us. His indwelling of us identifies us as God's own possession. And so this provides a, a foundation for us to understand our eternal security. Uh, we have been branded, as it were, if you think back to the days in the uh, in the old West, when especially here in Texas, you would you didn't have um, fences up around land, and so all of the cattle would just go out, and they would uh, mix from different ranches. And the only way to identify them was to brand them. They would take a uh, a metal that had been forged and shaped into a a certain symbol to indicate uh, each owner. Now we use that to refer to various uh, symbols and logos that that companies use in order to indicate uh, who they are and and what their uh, what their product is. And so you have brands for different kinds of drinks, and you have brands for different kinds of just you name it, any kind of, of product that's out there, and that indicates their uh, ownership and their their identity. And so when you are, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, it is like God brands us. And this is referred to as being sealed by the Spirit. That brand has various uh, dimensions to it, and so we need to understand a little bit about this from the way it was used uh, in, the, in the ancient world. So it is also referred to previously, was referred to previously in the first chapter of, of this epistle in the introduction. In Ephesians one thirteen, we read, in whom, that is in Christ, because this whole initial uh, introduction is talking about the fact that we have, we who are in him have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And then the rest of the introduction begins to list uh, many of these. And one of those is the sealing by the Spirit. And so Ephesians one thirteen says, in whom, that is in Christ, you also... 
when you heard the word of truth, that is, when you heard the gospel and you believed it, at that instant you were, uh, you were sealed. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, when you believed... So it's talking about at that instant of your salvation. The word there for belief is the Greek word pistuo, and it's a participle. It's a temporal participle here. So it's talking about that instant that you said, that's true. You believed it was true. And you didn't have to pray a prayer. You didn't have to pray the sinner's prayer. You didn't have to walk an aisle, do any of the other things that you often find churches do to make some sort of overt testimony. Your salvation took place because of an act between your ears. You heard the statements about who Christ was, who he claimed to be, and what he did for you. And you, uh, you said in your, in your thinking, I, I believe that's true. Yeah, I agree with that. That's right. Christ died for me. He paid the penalty for my sins on the cross. And you say that in whatever words or terminology you have, but it, it's an act of your, uh, of your will and of your intellect. And God, who is omniscient, knows instantly what you're trusting in for salvation, and you don't have to tell him because he's omniscient. And the instant you tell, the instant you believe that, at that instant, God does all these things for you. You're made alive anew in Christ. You are uh, raised together and seated together with him in the heavenlies. You are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. You're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and you're sealed by God the Holy Spirit. All those things happen and much, much more. At the instant you trusted in Christ as Savior, because when you're baptized by the Spirit, you're placed in Christ. You now, at that point, you become a member of the body of Christ. You're a new creature in Christ. You're the, not the old man in Adam anymore. You're the new man in Christ. And so all of that became true. And part of that is that when you believed at that instant, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And what that tells you is it wasn't something that's experienced. Now, some people have some sort of emotional release sometimes when they trust in Christ because they've been going through difficult times in their life and they suddenly realize that now uh, they're saved. Their, their problems are, are going to be taken care of and, and they have an emotional release. And that's fine, but that doesn't happen to everybody. I was six years old when my parents explained the gospel to me, and I was pretty excited that I was going to go to heaven. But there are other people who may be like the thief on the cross. I don't think he had an excitement at that point when Jesus said, uh, you will be with me today in paradise. He probably mentally was glad to hear that, and then he died. So there's not always that kind of an experience. Uh, thing that happens in our experience. You don't base your eternal security on an experience. Basic principle in life. You interpret the, you do not interpret the Word of God on the basis of your experience. You interpret your experience on the basis of the Word of God. And so there are many people who will doubt their salvation. They question their salvation. They're depressed. They're discouraged. They're fearful. Those are the trends of their sin nature. And so when something happens or they sin in some way, they think, oh, I must not be saved. Well, now you're relying on experience and you're saying God's promise isn't true. What we see here in this verse is that the sealing by the Holy Spirit, he's called here the Holy Spirit of promise, because the sealing by the Spirit is the uh, guarantee, we'll see, that God's promise will come true. And so whenever we doubt our salvation, we're basically calling God a liar. But Christ died for that sin, too, so you can recover from that. Grammatically, what we see here is the action of the participle, which is the word believed, when you believed at that point, is a past tense, 
And the, the main verb is this verb sfragizo, uh, which is also a past tense. It's an aorist. And so what that tells you is that uh, the action of the participle, when you believe, because an aorist participle can precede the action or can be at the same time as the action of the verb, but it's logically prior to but takes place simultaneously so that at that instant of faith in Christ, you are sealed. So the next verse, back in Ephesians 1.14, says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption. Notice that because in Ephesians 4.30, it tells us that we're sealed for the day of redemption. In Ephesians 1.14, uh, he's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So that this, the Holy Spirit is given to us, the sealing, uh, which is, which it is also, is at the instant of that indwelling. He is the, the sealing itself and he's the guarantee. He's the, he's the guarantee that we will be saved. And if you have ever trusted in Christ as Savior, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and you are God's whether you understand it, whether you want to believe it or not. You are God's, and that can never be lost. That's the significance of this sealing idea. And it is related to redemption. Now, redemption is a word that has different uh, senses to it. Uh, the basic meaning of the word uh, has to do with pur- purchasing something to the, the payment of a price. So whenever you read the word redemption, it always has that payment of a price that is uh, was used often in the slave market to refer to the redemption or the ransom payment of a slave so that they are set free. 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 723 reminds us that we were all bought with a price. That price was Christ's death on the cross for us. He died and he had every single human being in mind when he died. He could do that because he was omniscient. And he paid the penalty for every sin and every sinner. We were bought with a price. And the conclusion is, when you grasp that, that we have a response. We have a new owner, and we are to glorify the new owner, and that is God. We are to glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which are God's. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.23 repeats that thought. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Now, that's a background for understanding some things that are in Romans 6, 17 and 18, and then in verse 22. Now, earlier we talked about the baptism by the Spirit. The baptism by the Spirit is is covered in the first part of that chapter in Romans 6, 3 through 6, that when we trust Christ, the Holy Spirit identifies us with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that, we're a new creature in Christ. We have a new identity. We are now uh, the part of the new man, the body of Christ, and there is something different. And prior to that, we were slaves of sin. This is the point in Romans six seventeen. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin. Now, we were all slaves of sin because all we had from the time we were born, was a sin nature. So everything we did, the moral things and the immoral things, all came out of that sin nature. It is our fallen, corrupt nature. Jesus told his disciples at one one time, he said, um, you being evil. Now, they were already saved. They're his disciples, and he called them evil. You being evil, that refers to our fallen sin nature. You being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. See, we can, we can give good gifts, but it has, maybe it doesn't have any spiritual value. It only happens when we are in the church age, when we're walking by the Spirit. So God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart 
that form of doctrine or that teaching to which you were delivered and having been set free from sin. So we're no longer a slave to the sin nature. We are, but, but we're not free as it were because we don't go to a position of neutrality. We're either a slave of Christ or a slave of the sin nature. And so the instant that we are saved, we become a slave of righteousness, a slave of Christ. But the problem is we still have volition, we still have a sin nature, and so we can go back and live as if we're still slaves of our sin nature. Romans 6.22 says, But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. See, we are to live for God and not put ourselves back under the bondage of the sin nature. That is why in Romans 6.11 he says, Consider yourselves dead to sin. It's a volitional decision now. So at this point, as we study about um, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, what we learn is that it is a guarantee, that He is our guarantee of the promise. Number two, that it's the Holy Spirit Himself in His indwelling who is the sealing. The fact that we have the Holy Spirit, He indwells us, that's the sealing. We're sealed with the Spirit. Third, that this seal is a guarantee that the promise of eternal salvation will be fulfilled. And fourth, that that fulfillment is defined then as the redemption of the purchased possession. So we have a redemption when Christ pays the penalty for our sin on the cross. But that is that redemption is not brought to completion until we are absent from the body and we have not just uh, face-to-face with the Lord, but it's completed when we have our resurrection body, as, as we will see. So what are we going to do? We are going to briefly define the term of sealing. We're going to, second, we're going to look at the meaning of sfragizo and sealing as, we, as it's used in Scripture, because that will bring out the significance of this, of this image. Third, uh, we're going to look at the meaning of pledge. This is a different word, Erebon. And then we're going to look briefly at these four passages, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, 2 Corinthians 5, 5, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, which I've already talked about, and Ephesians 4, 30. And then conclude with why is this important for our spiritual life. So we'll look first at defining the term. The seal by the Spirit is the down payment that certifies God's ownership and protection, which secures the salvation of the church-age believer from the moment of faith when the Holy Spirit indwells until ultimate salvation in glorification is realized. That's a long statement. Now we're going to break it down as we go through this. But it's the down payment. And so just as you go and you purchase a car or you purchase a house or you purchase something else and you make a down payment, that down payment is to say that I am promising to pay it off in full and so that that becomes completely owned by me. And so that is the imagery that's going on here. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment that he will save us. And so it certifies to us that he owns us. We are his. He, we've been bought with a price, and we are not our own. And it protects us and secures us so that ultimately we will realize that glorification when we are face-to-face with the Lord. So that brings us to the second point, which is what is the meaning of this word? How is it used in Scripture? Usage defines a concept more than just going to the dictionary. What are some of the ways in which this is used? Well, we saw that it was used in Ephesians 1.13, referring to the fact that, uh, that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. It goes on in verse 14 to say it's the guarantee of our salvation. But what are some other examples? 
Well, these are examples of how it's used in just regular life. So the first example we see is from Daniel 6, verse 17. This is a story many people know. It's when uh, Daniel is put into the lion's den. He has violated this law of the Medes and the Persians that he is, no one is to pray to anyone for one month other than uh, Darius the king. But he disobeyed that because he was following a higher law from God. And so as he did every single day before this law went into effect, he opened up the, uh, opened up his doors and he knelt down to pray facing, uh, facing the temple or where the temple had been in Jerusalem. And so he was, as a result of that, and against really the desires of Darius because he loved Daniel, he was put into the lion's den and uh, the door was sealed so that no, it protected Daniel from anybody going in and killing him. And it also guaranteed uh, that that area was was secure. It made the lion's den inaccessible to anyone else. So th- those are the ideas there. It's an idea of protection. It's an idea of inaccessibility and an idea of security. And so he used his signet ring. A ring would have a certain image on it. I'll show you some pictures in a minute. Uh, would have certain uh, figures on it that when you pressed it into uh, soft wax, you would get it would the, the signet would be the reverse image, and then you would see an image that was uh, connected to that of the in- individual. You have uh, another mention in the New Testament when Jesus was put into the tomb and they rolled the stone in front of the tomb. Then they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So this was to really protect uh, the grave so that the disciples could not come in and steal the body. That's what the Roman guard thought. Well, we're going to protect it. We'll put a seal on it. And that way we'll know if anybody tries to uh, get in and steal the body. So again, it has that idea of security and the idea of protecting uh, that which was inside. In Revelation, the idea of sealing is used several times. In Romans 7, 3, it, I mean, excuse me, Revelation 7, 3, it is used as a seal on these 144,000, uh, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They're not Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not Mormons. They are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes is Israel. 12 times 12,000 is 144,000, and God seals them. It is a prote- special sealing, not the sealing of the Holy Spirit. It's a special sealing that will protect them from the Antichrist until it is time for them to be to be martyred. So in Revelation 7, 3, we read, um, the angel saying, uh, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. So this was some kind of mark of ownership. And then uh, John says, and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So again, it's the idea of security and protection. In Revelation 20, verse 3, Satan, and I believe it's Satan and the demons, are cast into the bottomless pit, the abyss. And God sets a seal on him. It is to uh, seal him so that he cannot escape. So again, it has this idea of the uh, closure and isolation of Satan in the abyss as a prison and his inability to escape. The world will be inaccessible uh, to Satan. If we go back to the first part of the future section of Revelation, uh, there's a scroll, and on this scroll are seven seals, and that it was used with documents in order to protect a document so that only the person uh, who owned the document could see it. It was to secure and protect a document so that just not just anybody uh, could see it. So there's this scroll that's written on the inside on the back, sealed with these seven uh, seven seals. Uh, later on in, um, in uh, Revelation, there's going to be 
um, uh, an additional reference to sealing future revelation so that uh, uh, John was not to uh, speak about it. He was to just uh, seal it or not record it. And that was in Revelation, uh, I believe that's in Revelation 12. Revelation 10.4, or excuse me, it's right here in this verse. Revelation 10.4, where God told him to seal up the things which the seven thunders have uttered, not to write about them. So it's used metaphorically there. We go back to the Old Testament, we see that uh, there are signet rings. And what I have here is an ancient Egyptian signet ring pictured. And this was the symbol for the Pharaoh. So anything that had that impression on it was the Pharaoh's. It's a mark of ownership. But if somebody had a document with a Pharaoh's seal on it, it was also something that authenticated uh, that person as a representative of the Pharaoh. So this has this idea, if we're sealed by the Spirit, it authenticates the fact that we are a representative of Christ. We are an ambassador of Christ. Again, in the Old Testament, uh, with Haggai, uh, the Lord says, uh, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. So that he's talking about metaphorically that he is um, the one who's authenticated as the leader of, of, um, of, of Israel. Paul uses it uh, as a seal of righteousness, which indicates uh, what the sign of circumcision was uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. So we see that there are various ideas related to a seal. It attests to the authenticity of someone. It certifies something. It ratifies something. It protects. It secures. So we can summarize it this way. It is used to authorize uh, authorize certain actions. It is used to authenticate documents. It is used to bestow authority on someone. It is also used to identify ownership. It is used to protect, to secure, and to make something inaccessible. It is also used to guarantee the fulfillment of a covenant or a pledge. And that's what we also see in these passages talking about the sealing of the Spirit, that the Spirit is given as our pledge or down payment of our salvation. And that's in the word Erebone. Erebone has this idea of a, of a down payment, a deposit, a pledge that something will be accomplished. So we have looked at these first three things, and then briefly we're going to look at these other significant passages. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, we read, Now he who established us, the he is referring, of course, to God. He who established us with you in Christ has anointed us, is God. So the anointing there relates to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Greek word translated established is babayo, which really has the idea of confirming something, of making it certain. So when we are sealed, it is a confirmation that makes certain our salvation. That's developed in the second verse, verse 22, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee as a pledge or deposit. So it's the Holy Spirit who's the pledge. It's the Holy Spirit himself indwelling us that is the seal, and that is true for anyone who has trusted Christ as Savior. Again, this is used in referenced in 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, as an airbone. He's our guarantee. So God guarantees our salvation so we can never lose it, so we should never doubt it. To doubt it is to say that God is lying. But if you have ever believed Jesus Christ died on your cross, God's promise is that you are eternally secure in your salvation. And to doubt that is to say, well, it's not true. I never believed in Jesus. It's not based on your emotion. You either base it, you base your security on the promise of God, or on your emotion. If you're basing it on your emotion, 
then you are making an idol, a false god, out of your emotion. So you have to confess that sin and turn to turn to God. Ephesians one fourteen, we see again the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, the arabone of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession until it's brought to completion. And that relates to the last phrase in Ephesians 4.30, the day of redemption. The word redemption used here is a long word. It's apolutrosis. Apolutrosis. Now, I emphasize that because the L-U-T in the middle is your root. Everything else is either a prefix or suffix. And so this loot word group, whether it's lutrao or apolutrao, it always refers to the payment of a price. So every time you see the word redemption, you need to think in terms of a price has been paid. And the payment of that price results in redemption, which is why, and, and the forgiveness of our sins. So when the price is paid, it's the eradication of a debt. Uh, so you, we have th- those passages. Uh, it is, uh, we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Redemption's the payment of a price, payment of a ransom. Jesus came as the Son of Man, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He paid the price for us. In Philippians 3, 20 to 21, we're told when this future time, what happens in this future time, the day of redemption. For our citizenship is in heaven. We have a dual citizenship. Most of you are citizens of the United States. Maybe you're citizens of some other countries, but you're also a citizen of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. See, that, that full, that, that's phase three, not just when we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord, that's sort of the beginning, but it's when we receive that resurrection body that is, that is ours. So when we are, when we die and we're face to face with the Lord, scripture indicates we have an interim body, but it is not until the rapture of the church that we all receive our uh, resurrection body. Christ will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able, able even to subdue all things to himself. Romans 8.23 not only talks about the redemption of our body, but it talks about the redemption of the creation, which is now groaning. Okay, so that is that it shows that it is not just something refers to phase one, but it also refers to phase three with our glorification. So what have we learned in conclusion? Number one, the ceiling indicates that we are authenticated. We are authenticated as a believer, as a member of the church, the body of Christ and the royal family of God. But it's not experiential. It is based on the fact that you mentally believed, trusted in Christ as Savior. Second, we have been purchased. We have been bought with a price. We have been redeemed, and we are now owned by God. We are His. Third, we are secure and protected in our position, in our salvation in our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So because of that, we're secure and our eternal salvation is protected. And finally, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for all believers from the instant of salvation guarantees our future, ultimate redemption, and full salvation guaranteeing that our salvation is eternally secure and can never be lost. So when we look at this verse in verse verse 30, the command is don't grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit by uh, going back to verse 25, not putting, not, not living our lives based on truth, but going back and living the lie like we're still part of the old man. So that grieves the Holy Spirit. 
in a more tight sense of the of the context. Uh, the previous command is not to let any corrupt word proceed out of our mouth. So this is going to relate to sins of the tongues, and that specifically is what grieves the Holy Spirit of God. And we're reminded why that's so important, because he is the one given to us as the guarantee of our salvation. He is the one who has sealed us, and we have to therefore look forward to where God is taking us in the future day of redemption. So with that, we will come back next time and look at the next uh, next couple of verses and their significance related to our own sin nature and our own behavior as new creatures in Christ with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things, to understand this incredible privilege that we have in terms of the indwelling, the anointing of God, the Holy Spirit, that he dwells within us. He has actually made our body a temple for the indwelling of the Son and you, the Father. We are indwelt by the entire Trinity. We are therefore set apart to serve you positionally. Father, this is why we are to live not like we lived before we were saved, not like the rest of the Gentiles, but we are to live distinctively based upon all of these uh, commands of Scripture. But we know we sin. You know we sin. We continue to sin. The sin nature is still with us. And that is the process of our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. So, Father, we just pray that, that you would continue to challenge us with these, uh, these realities. But, Father, we need to also pray for those here who may not have ever trusted in Christ as Savior, may not have eternal life, may not really understand how to be saved, that salvation is not based on what we do or what we don't do other than one thing, and that is trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior. All the behavior, all the sins, all of those things, doing them or not doing them, apart from trusting in Christ is just meaningless. The issue in the good news is that we can't do anything to save ourselves. We can't reform our lives. We can't change ourselves. All we can do is trust in Christ. We have to rest in what he did on the cross. When he said it is finished, it meant that there was nothing that could be added to it, that our salvation, the work for our salvation was completed totally at the cross. All that was left is for us to accept it, trusting in Christ as our Savior who paid for our sins. So, Father, we pray that you would make that clear to anyone who is not saved. And, Father, we pray that you would challenge us to live for you because we have been bought with a price. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let us stand together for our closing prayer. I mean, let's stand together for our closing hymn. It's How Precious is the book divine. This is 13b in your hymnal. And then I'm going to ask uh, Bryce if he would please come up and dismiss us in closing prayer. Please stand.